Hello and welcome back again to Red Star Radio. This week it's a special edition coming to you with not one, not two, um, but four participants, uh, including two guests who are joining us from um, the continent to which Britain has just tried to divorce itself unsuccessfully from. So uh, without further ado, I'll throw over to Layla, uh, who is going to introduce our guests for today. Um, So we're speaking with Elena Lang, who is a senior researcher and lecturer of Japanese studies at the University of Zurich in Switzerland, as well as Joshua DePaulis, who is an independent research who is an independent researcher and editor at an upcoming journal called Counterattack. Um, we both learned about them through a zero books interview that they gave um, maybe a couple of weeks ago now, and we were very intrigued. We read a great article that they have recently published um, on the state of the left and working class. Um, activism. Um, so, Elena and Josh, I know that um, we have a list of questions here, and a lot of them are related to different, mainly related to your article. Uh, but we were wondering if you could move up a question about uh, coronavirus, because I know that's on everyone's mind, and uh, we yeah. thought it might we might hit it off with a, <laughs> a bit of a chat yeah, on sure. COVID nineteen. <laughs> sure. Okay, great. So. All right. So, um, Alex, do you want to take it away and ask that question? Yeah, yeah. So we thought we'd start with something that's nice and, you know, uncontroversial and certainly isn't going to upset anybody. <laughs> um, certainly not going to cause anybody to have a Twitter meltdown at any of us. Um, so um, over the course of the last year, um, there's been uh, regimes of differing sorts of lockdowns running across, well, most of the advanced capitalist world. And we've had the situation where most of the left, uh, be it the openly reformist social democratic left or the alleged Marxists, have all lined up behind uh, the lockdown measures or demanded more lockdown measures, behind the, the idea of, well, the science says that we have to go this way, therefore displaying a what what we view as a lack of ability to critique the place of science within capitalist production. Um, but we wanted to get your take on that and the sort of the broader problems that the the left, to, in, in, to use the umbrella term, um, response to COVID and the lockdowns and everything else has actually shown during the course of the last year. So I don't know which of what which one of you wants to jump in on that first. Yeah, um, I can do that. Um, so the question of, of of science, you know, justifying pro lockdown positions even on the left. Uh, I think so there that the left has indeed lost its its um, ability capability to place it uh, within modern capitalist relations of production but before I come to this question of of you know the science response to the pandemic and, it, and the appropriation of the left I wanted to, I would maybe frame this this topic uh, more broadly uh, within the left's perception of the corona debate so what I think what we can see, first of all, is complete reification of the social sphere. So the virus has now completely subsumed the social and political and economic sphere. And as such, um, it, it, um, it is something like a social determination in the shape of a biological fact, something that has seemingly come upon us naturally. And we know, uh, of course, that this isn't true. And it's like in Marx's teaching of fetishism, uh, Corona has now become a prototypical fetish, a social phenomenon we regard as natural. But I would contend that in, in the present world, in the world we live in, in this historical moment, there is no longer such a natural world unaffected by 
the law of value and the valorization postulate of capital, or in more banal terms, saving the health system, you know, which has become the only rationale for the lockdowns from the, from the beginning. It was the only rationale for the, for the lockdowns uh, is a question of money and not of keeping a natural force at bay. So we have to see that the health system is a money finance institution. So in the financial crisis 10 years ago, 11 years ago, banks were um, too big to fail and 480 billion euros were um, easily organized. And of course, the debt was socialized. But nonetheless, it was completely possible to save the banks. But this is not possible with the health system, right? So it, it is presented to us, this whole issue of saving the health system is presented to us as a product of, of um, or a requirement to goodwill. So we need to cut the demand side of this gracious institution. And there is not even a discussion of pumping 480 billion euros into the European health system. Why not? So I think there are three problems, uh, three problems associated with how the left... Uh, and even the radical left now argues for lockdowns and, and even for authoritarianism. And they are all related to this inverted perception of reality. The first is um, saving lives. I will say a little bit of that, about that. The second is this contention that normal, normality is death. So there was no normality even before COVID. And the third is listen to the science, which was your initial question. I want to come to, back to that. But first... They say it's about saving lives and humanitarianism, humanitarianism. But this is actually what what radical leftists say, without irony, that lockdowns save lives. You know, this why that's why they have to be imposed. But for example, school closures have a terrible effect on the lives of children. Right? For example, they miss out on school meals for many children. It's the only warm meal they have per day. And psychological diseases, also suicides with children, young people surge. In the global south, people die from malaria, floods or hunger because COVID delays or even cancels imports of medications and everyday goods for these people. You know, So it's interesting to me to point to this fact when I talk about the global south. And I don't even use this, this term global south a lot, but it's such a concern of the left, you know. Uh, what about people in the third world countries? Yeah, right. What about these people? Right. Suddenly it's completely out of the picture. What happens to these people? And, you know, all these things, you know, um, the diseases that would not be lethal with the appropriate treatments are getting canceled. Uh, and there are no statistics about how many people actually die from completely preventable diseases right now because of these, this situation and uh, impoverishment and higher scales of immiseration globally. We see all these things. and um, But they, the left still say it's about saving lives. To me, that's something like a Montgomery Burns method of evaluating social problems, you know. And they, sometimes it's either that, uh, Montgomery Burns uh, from The Simpsons, or it's um, it reminds me sometimes even of the anti-abortion, uh, pro-life radical Christians, you know, it's, it's life at, at, at any cost, you know. And the second, the second point that the left, um, the second argument uh, for the left is normality is death. And saying this is, and you read it, I've read a couple of articles that say normal life, there is no such thing as normal life under, under relations, uh, on the capitalist relations of production. But if you say this, you know, you have to, you have to be aware that this is a justification for totalitarianism. If you argue that capitalism means suffering anyway, you know, which is, is quite a cynical view, 
then you can justify any kind of awfulness because then it doesn't matter anyway, right? But it makes a difference for kids if schools are open or not, if they have food on the table or not. And the third thing, listen to science. Um, it's, it's a big argument on the left. And it, I think it is a big argument anyway. It's not just for left, for liberals, even for right-wingers. Um, and I would also argue that lockdowns is a bipartisan issue. But now this is something that leftists will hear from leftists more often, um, listen to science. But what is science under the conditions of capitalist valorization? I think there is no, it must be clear that there is no objective science to speak of, but that science, scientific institutions who depend on, on monetary funds and so on, are equally part and parcel of the need to throw off surplus value to keep the machine running. So this idealization of science is deeply ideological and science is constantly, even from itself, developing and changing. You know, we hear contradictory evaluations all the time. So today it has been announced that the British strain of the virus is less fatal than initially supposed. But of course, the people will only remember the initial claim, you know, that monster variants will kill three quarters of the global population. This is what sticks with the people. And that has something to do with a certain tendency um, in recent years, I think, also under in, in pro so-called progressive circles, this Greta Thunberg's I choose to panic, you know, this emblematic I choose to panic. And I think it's, it's actually the deepest antithesis to an emancipatory view of science, which is possible, you know. And of course, there are scientists who step out of line, whose analysis do not fit in the common understanding of panic anti-politics. I think it was Leila, it was you, who who um, who posted this Stanford study on Twitter on the lack of evidence for an inherent relation between lockdowns and containment of the virus? And I I, I was checking on some um, on the reception of that of that study of that Stanford study in the in the German press, and you cannot imagine what I've read. It was it was outright. It was propaganda, you know, there was they were saying Stanford study is unscientific and they were using wrong data and their mathematical models are flawed. You know, um, I'm, I'm just wondering what's going on. And now that we see numbers going down globally, uh, the propaganda, it seems, has never been so uh, so open and so authoritarian. It's almost as though they are losing the rationale for the justification of lockdowns. Yeah. That's it uh, for my side and, and on that topic for now. Um, I mean, I would just add the, the way I view the, a lot of the, the lockdown phenomena is I think it, it fits within a broader spectrum of the, the militarization of social relations as a way to compensate essentially for the, um, uh, the collapse of, of social infrastructure and the, um, uh, the degradation of the conditions of, of reproduction of labor power. And, if you go beyond just public health and look look at broader issues, you can see that 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 same methodology has been applied very very widely. I think you know the the war on crime or war on drugs is a great example, especially if you you look at some of the more extreme manifestations of that. Like for example, you know in the Philippines where they're like we're, we're going to deal with this this pervasive problem of um, addiction to stimulants by just killing people. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, I think that the way in which the science has been used in this pandemic, it's been an assault on the solidarity of the proletariat mm -hmm. by telling everyone, based on this unproven hypothesis of asymptomatic spread, 
driving this pandemic, which was invented at the beginning of this pandemic based on a handful of anecdotes from China and mm-hmm. some mathematical models that have not borne out. And it's the pre- one of the key premises on which these lockdowns are based. It makes everyone think that they are a deadly threat to their loved ones, whether or not they have the disease, whether or not they know they have the disease, whether or not mm-hmm. they have a positive or negative test. Like, yeah, they believe yeah. that even if, you know, at all times they have to be on guard to passing on this disease that they've been told also is far, far more deadly, excuse me, far, far more deadly than it actually is. And um, yeah, Alina, to your point about how the bourgeoisie is now losing the script and the propaganda is getting even more hysterical. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Like that's what's happening in Canada right now. You have doctors um, talking about, you know, younger people, 40-year-olds, 30-year-olds going into the ICU when talking about how this number is increasing. But they never mm-hmm. put it into context, which is yeah. what scientists should be able to do. Contextualize mm-hmm. information for people because they have the wider view of what's going on due to their training. And the mm-hmm. fact of the matter is that only... a a minute proportion of people who contract COVID-19 who are young in younger years end up in the hospital. It's like mm-hmm. a, like not even a single percent. So yeah. yeah, I do. I do think things are getting more hysterical and I think it's because people have been in and out of lockdown for a year. They don't see their loved ones falling down dead around them, which, you know, if that was the case, then you wouldn't need so much propaganda. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if the but pandemic why do you was... think that is? I mean, why do you think? Do you think it has something to do with the, um, you know, um, with the valorization postulate? Because when Josh mm. and I were writing the um, this article, the middle class Leviathan, a year ago, it was a year ago that we wrote it. Oh, really? We so oh. Sh- yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. Very perceptive. You know. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Yeah. No, but we, in fact, it wasn't so very perceptive because we still thought that, so at least I thought, I don't want to speak for, for Joshua, but I thought mm. that profits would go down rather than up at that mm. point. You know, so mm. I thought that would be a clash of interests, you know, between, I don't know, the PMC health sector and the economy. But that wasn't true. So when, mm. the, when the numbers came in at the end of last year, that mm. not just big tech, but the real economy's uh, profits were surging, in fact. You know, they, mm. they have never met, made that much profit, much profit in their whole existence, in the time of their existence. Uh, we were somehow, you know, justified in, in saying, you know, this is actually what's happening as, as re- complete restructuring of, uh, you know, of, of the economy. It's a new neoliberal accumulation regime. That, mm. is, that is being established here, you know. Mm. And it's really difficult to argue with people. <laughs> I don't want to say leftists because, it's, of course, it's difficult to argue with leftists, but people more generally because they, they, they really they see the saving lives imperative uh, and don't put it into relation to, to actually what it means for the lives of, you know, working class people and people in the global south and so on. You know, and it reminds me of this this argument that we had um, that we also um, referred to in the article by uh, by Paul Matic uh, Jr., who is a, a Marxist icon, um, and he's Paul Matic's son for, for Christ's sake, and and he said, yeah, you know, so people now losing their jobs and all of that doesn't really matter because people are going to reorganize their lives. You know, this utopianism that, that's crept into liberal Marxism for a while now. And uh, I think it's really destructive. You know, it's really destructive for, for clear analysis right now. 
Well, the um, the the question of the the left seeing this as some sort of way they were going to jumpstart a new society just shows mm-hmm. that um, all of the left's political projects have collapsed into failure. Uh, mm-hmm. We've had exactly. we've had a lot. Uh, I mean. I'm, in Britain, of course, we had the Corbyn so-called phenomenon, of which probably more later. Um, but everywhere else, like where every other political project from the last decade that was supposed to advance the causes that the left supposedly believes in from the period of the crash onwards, from the 2008 to 2010, mm-hmm. has all have all imploded and ended in failure or ended in just outright betrayal. So yeah. It, Looking at it that way, it's not really a surprise that they adopt like magical thinking uh, or the belief that they can find a um, a crisis that can somehow they can somehow leverage to jumpstart a movement to some form of new society. Yeah. It's completely lun- lunatic thinking, but it's not yeah. a surprise given how much everything has imploded within on the left in the last four years. Um, but just on the profits question, I mean the. The, the reason, the whole reason why um, Layla and I started um, critiquing the lockdowns as we did was that um, I, I started off by just looking at how many people in Britain were still actually having to physically go into work every single day during yeah. this su- supposed lockdown period. And it was the number is imprecise, but it is at least 20 million that, who, who have had yeah. to continue working. And like all of the, um, so, all of the um, what in Marxist terms you would call the productive working class was basically declared essential workers and told they had to go mm-hmm. in no matter what. Mm-hmm. And it was the um, the more middle class layers who were sent home to um, you know answer emails from their sofa. Um, mm-hmm. So the profitability of the the British capitalist economy it took a bit of a dip, but it, what it revealed was just how unimportant the sectors that got hit really were. So like they yeah, decided that they could basically lose hospitality, tourism, and leisure for a whole year. And it mm. didn't really, it never made as much of an impact as um, a lot of people, including myself, thought that it would. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you even with the expansion and in unemployment, then a lot of that was mopped up by a really big expansion in the logistics and delivery side of um, of business because, of course, there was so mm-hmm. much being delivered to people's homes. So even like uh, all the delivery companies expanded, all the warehouse operations expanded. So it just showed also to draw on Josh's point about militarization that I think as we creep towards a, new, a, a renewal, probably, of the crisis of 2008, it's not a surprise that the capitalist class is trying out different forms of militarization and control in order to prepare for when the next crisis comes. And if they can militarize under the guise of something else, when, well, then so much the better. And just my, my final thought was just to the similarity to the war on drugs, but also the whole war on terror narrative is telling because they emphasized that there was this gigantic amorphous threat called al-Qaeda or called terror or radical Islamic yeah. terror that yeah. you could never see. It, could, it was always ill-defined and it was always shifting um, in the media messaging and in the government propaganda. So they could justify literally anything through it for quite a long time until that credibility ran out um, a few years ago, really. And they can't, that's kind of, the, the, the narrative is still there, but it doesn't really work. 
So it's, it's, it, we are subject to very similar waves of propaganda from, um, from the capitalist state in this period popularly referred to as the neoliberal period, I think. Yeah, but then, um, yeah, I agree. I'm not so sure that uh, propaganda was working so well with uh, Al Qaeda and, and and you know the war on terror as it as it does today, because it, it's such it's become so pervasive. The propaganda is now. Um, but then, what do you make of? I, I'm curious to hear what you what you make of this because I think uh, it's a European rather than maybe Canadian phenomenon that this this uh, zero COVID initiative, because they say what you said before about productive workers. They say, um, you know, we have to shut down the economy. We have to shut down the economy that produces, um, you know, where productive work, workers are employed, uh, where real value is produced. What do you think of that? I mean, is this, like, just to give back the question to you, is this a, a, a sustainable way, you know, to to, to you know, something that, that would be emancipatory, you know, I, progressive. I mean, I know some of the, slightly some of the players who have been putting this forward on the left in Britain. And what the the term I would apply to them is it's it's a mixture of like adventurism and opportunism. Um, yeah. The people who are putting it forward, like the MPs in Parliament, like Richard Burgeon, John Trickett, etc., they're all the people who failed completely when it came to um, the Corbyn project going off the rails. And so they, and they also, of course, lost significant chunks of the working class to the Conservative Party. So I, for them, I think this is their attempt at a shortcut back into trying to, basically trying to grab some kind of element of working class power and they will be unable to do so. I also think that you can't, they think that you can basically leverage this and get it to be of use politically, but you can't leverage something that isn't real. So the threat they're saying COVID poses isn't there. And the working class isn't going to go for it, nor are they going to thank the unions if they somehow did manage to pressure Boris Johnson into closing down key industries. The the working class really isn't going to thank the unions, the left or the labor or the left of the labor party, for putting them on um, hiatus or in or in unemployment. So, it's a fantasy driven, dreamed up by what I would define as very petty bourgeois layers who don't have a real connection to the working class. They view the working class uh, in purely instrumentalist terms. Um, as to uh, and also as something to be marched on stage and marched off again according to the whims of uh, whatever the election mm -hmm. cycle is. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, just to interject, I think J Josh wants to jump in. Did you want to jump in, Josh? I just hear you. Oh yeah, I, lo I lost connection briefly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I would I would kind of tend to add to that with. With reference to um, uh, a zero COVID, I think you know what, what was just being said about it is is largely correct. I, I don't agree that that a corona is is not a threat. I think you would see you know two national level examples, both Italy and the United States. There was a, a very broad understanding among workers that corona was a threat. And for example, if if you look at Italy, there was a um. Uh, quite an incredibly involved confrontation between some of the um, more base democratic oriented unions like the 
the COBAs, especially in logistics, and the Italian um, Employers Federation in terms of what, you know, what exactly would be closed down and what kind of protocols would be followed in, in industries that remained open. And I think also in the United States, which um, like the UK, the United States has had like an incredible run of some decades of, of labor passivity. There was a lot of largely, largely spontaneous, um, uh, although admittedly all of them quite small scale, um, walkouts and so on also related to um, uh, safety pro protocols in both um, uh, like basic industries like the auto industry and also in um, uh, food service and retail. But I think the, the fundamental difference between those kind of interventions and something like the zero COVID campaign is the interventions that I'm talking about, they're actually coming, at least in the Italian case, they're coming from very organized elements of the working class itself, yeah. which is evaluating its own situation and, and formulating a counter policy, trying to impose its own demands well, as Alex was pointing out with reference to the zero COVID campaign, it's fundamentally this, this utopian and paternalistic imposition where some professionals are asking the state, uh, allegedly on behalf of the working class, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, to protect the workers according to, you know, how they think it should be done. And that's a huge difference. Yeah, and there's also a major uh, contradiction in the zero COVID initiative. So I totally agree to what both um, Alex and Josh said. So the initiative basically wants to shut down the economy and all, and all the workers to go home, right? They want the workers to go home and not organize, right? Except, of course, workers in the care sector, in logistics, in hospitals, etc., right? So they, it's not even about really shutting the economy down. They still want, you know, uh, to have ch children, uh, care for children. They want logistics to work. They still want hospitals to work, right? So it's a, it's a strange lockdown within the lockdown. And the aim of this uh, initiative is to have actually zero COVID infections, and that is and that is also utopian. <laughs> you have to look at that side, you know, as well, uh, not just the the organizational uh, problems involved with this. Yeah, yeah, I, I zero COVID has started popping up in Canada here and there. Some leading propagandist doctors in Ontario have started a petition, for instance, to get the federal government to pursue a zero COVID strategy. The fact of the matter is that I think the core analytical error made by Marx, uh, leftists, definitely, and certainly many Marxists, is the idea that capital, that capitalists will end capital accumulation, that they can do that even, is a core analytical error here. The only thing that would have actually impeded production is if this disease was in fact a high as highly deadly as capitalists first feared that it would be but the fact of the matter is that productive labor never ended the vast majority of working people were going into work every single day since the start of the pandemic they initially in Canada and the United States there was some agitation around masks the scientific community quickly changed their stance on masking said literally from one week to the next that masks were not useful and said next week, oh, actually, they are useful, gave the workers masks and the workers were like, they felt safe and that was the end of it. 
But masks probably don't do anything, minimal, if anything at all. There's no evidence that they do anything as of yet. So I, I just don't... This I think that the, what's happened here is that the capitalist class saw some alarming data coming out of China. And we have to understand this is something that Alex told me that's had a huge impact on me, that the ruling class is fundamentally an irrational group of people. They don't they don't they don't think critically, they don't have a view of the totality. And so they don't understand how the world works. And so when they saw that data, they panicked and they shut down as much of the as much as the economy as they could, they could as the capitalist class. So they sacrificed the unproductive segments of the economy. But they would never ever shut down the productive segments of the economy because that would mean the end of capitalism. Of course, the working class, if it had done a general strike, could shut down production. That is that would have happened. But that's only going to happen through working class organization. And so far, the working class has, um, once they were given masks, they have not been affected by COVID-19. It's not been a deadly disease as was initially promised by capitalists. Like it's been no worse than a bad flu for the vast majority of people, except for the old and infirm, um, who are a small proportion of the population. So, yeah, I just think that... That is why I think, I, unfortunately, I think it's a result of a lack of proletarian theory and proletarian voice that exists, that we, that this, that w- w- people were led to believe that capitalists could even slow, would unilaterally slow the accumulation of profits even, that that was never going to happen, not unilaterally. It, it would have had to have been forced to, to do that through an actual pandemic or through working class pressure. Yeah, I agree. But um, I think it's more complex even than that, though I agree. Um, what we hear now, especially from, you know, I'm here, I live in Switzerland. I, I, I read uh, Swiss news, of course. I, le- I read a lot of, of German news. And for example, the German radical left, and I think they are more or less uh, representative of the uh, European uh, radical left. They say, and this is really, I think it's also really dangerous. They say, okay, we have to do a kind of politics that's in the interest of workers. And the main interest of workers in, 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 in this problem, in this problematic time, COVID, is to be safe, right? And that's why they want to shut down the productive se- uh, sector and tell the workers to go home. But I think that that this, um, you know, saving lives and this amalgamation of the saving lives rationale with protection for workers is really uh, is really precarious because they don't want workers to organize. You know, if you want to overthrow the system, then you have to have organization of workers. And if workers go home, they're going to be uh, atomized individuals again in their family uh, their family contexts. You know. And so there is no real interest from the radical left to organize workers, to overthrow the system that has produced something like COVID in the first place. You know what I'm well, saying? You need, of course, but you need to organize around material issues. You need to organize on the terrain that the proletariat can actually win, which is the material, wages, mm-hmm. work conditions, yeah. things of that nature. Um, I think that why we are so critical of bourgeois science is because um, it's been used not only to to mystify reality for the bourgeoisie itself. But it's also been used to mystify 
reality for leftists, most Marxists, and the proletariat. Um, sure. Doctors and scientists are trusted people in our society as of yet. People trust them. And mm -hmm. they've been delivering and are continuing to deliver inaccurate information. And so when you have when you have a working class that's been that's been given inaccurate information, they, you know, you go when when workers go to an employer with a set of demands, right? Every demand that they have is something the employer will try to negotiate on. And so if you're going to the employer and one of your demands is, you know, I want a, a wage boost, I want masks and I want shorter mm -hmm. hours or something like that, then the employer will always give you what it's not materially impactful for them to do in exchange for something that does have a material impact on them. So this is what happened with masks. All of the unions in Canada agitated fero ferociously for masks because they thought they believed the science and they said, this is protective. And so this is the very least that you can do. So employers countered and said, okay, here are the masks. So here's some masks, like, but maybe look at, let's like, let's like re re-examine this wage thing. So it's, it's, you know, I think the proletariat here has been equipped with inaccurate knowledge. And I think this is why Alex and I, we talk about this constantly about the need for, you know, a proletarian party that can actually show people what the truth is so that they, they are, they are, um, they are equipped with the right information to, you know, to, to do that, to collapse the objective and the subjective, right. To like, mm -hmm. to have a proper revolutionary outlook that is um, rooted in the material conditions of the day, the true material conditions. And that unfortunately didn't happen this time around. Yeah, just to expand on uh, something Elena was saying there about the the German radical left's demands to send everybody home. I mean, mm -hmm. that's exactly mm -hmm. the view of the, uh, the working class that the whole Corbyn movement had, which is it is mm -hmm. um, the, the working class is not the, the subject of politics for them. It is yeah. an object of charity or an object to be used to potentially uh, put on the street in a symbolic demonstration and then send home again in normal times. Um, mm -hmm. The idea of the working class as being the key class to the you know, to entering into a new age for the human race as a whole, that is something that is as alien to the modern leftist as it is to the liberal or even conservatives now. It's, I mean, just to give a, a real world example. Yeah, I totally agree. I, 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 sorry, just to interrupt to what I, I fully agree to what Layla, uh, what you said, Layla, and what you are saying now, Alex. I, the only thing why I, why I said I, I completely agree, but um, if we want to have a strong working class movement, we have to analyze the left's tactics. And I think this is exactly what's happening. And they, they, the revolutionary subject is no longer the worker for the left, right? No. Sorry, I was interrupting you. Yeah, I mean that's exactly what to... I was. That's exactly what I mean, which is that the re the the subject of politics for them is themselves, which is exactly, them. Yeah. I mean, as you point out in the essay, are them and the uh, as you call it the leviathan of organizations that surround them, from um, union bureaucracies to party bureaucracies to NGOs, and it's why mm -hmm. they it's because they view that as the themselves as the subject of, of politics that they and because of their class position which is much more petty bourgeois than it ever was in in it ever was working class um they bounce bet wildly between different objectives as the that class typically bounces between the proletariat and bourgeoisie 
And that's why they keep pursuing things like you mentioned, like uh, the whole Greta Thunberg type of politics like this. Um, Mm -hmm. The attempt to uh, weaponize the whole issue of climate change and environmentalism by running around Mm -hmm. and telling everybody they're going to die in five years, uh, which, Mm -hmm. of course, completely destroys your credibility when it's five years later and everybody's still here. Uh, People can people (laughs) tend to notice that. Um, but because they they're, they're looking for the 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 trick that will I think you put it in the essay like they will trick their way back into corporatism or something. Um, that's yeah. what they're looking yeah. to do. They're looking for a way in which their bureaucracy can be more intertwined with the state. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, they they believe a lot of this stuff is is based on the false premise that the state can be wielded for the benefit of the proletariat. Yeah, You can exactly. just take it. But it can't. This is a wrong... Unfortunately, no one reads Lenin anymore. But I know wrong. somebody who does. He is uh, one of your guests. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> but the thing is, the thing is, I so, I so agree with you. And, um, you know... No, I've lost track. I'll come back to that. Okay. Sorry. Well, maybe this is a good... I don't know, Josh, did you have any closing um, wrapping up thoughts on COVID? We could move on to other questions to talk about kind of the left, the issue with the left more broadly. One wrapping up thought I would make is... Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, sort of a, a brief interjection I would make is I I think there is kind of a tendency among a lot of these, you, this you could say, um, kind of lockdown skeptical left to sort of um, minimize corona, which I I don't necessarily share. I think it, it is a dangerous disease, although obviously it's not the Black Plague or something. It's still dangerous. I mean, the seasonal flu is already a, a serious public health issue, and, and corona is, I think it's widely agreed, it's, it's significantly more dangerous than that. And I think you've also seen uh, in a lot of the world, you know, a lot of spontaneous worker action in response to workers' perception of the dangers of contracting corona, specifically in production, you know, specifically in the sectors producing surplus value that um, uh, capitalists are unwilling to close. Um, so I would be I would be very very hesitant to to minimize corona because I think, like for example, the the, the issue that, that that you bring up about the Canadian unions about focusing on a demand for masks that goes much more beyond. Uh, uh, simple focus on um, a public health or upon restricting disease spread to very specifically a focus on a demand that in no way affects profitability um, and no way affects production. Like, for example, a demand for, for better sanitation or better ventilation in production or logistical facilities, which is something that is, has certainly come up in a lot of struggles. That's a, that's a whole other issue. And you know, precisely for the reasons that you were saying, the union bureaucracies are very willing to get involved in a, a sort of meaningless demand for something like masks. That's also why they, they aren't really going to push for um, uh, serious safety improvements like that. And I think that's a that's a, that's another aspect of the situation that I think is is worth considering. Mm. Well, I completely disagree. I think coronavirus is is actually, I mean. It isn't any worse than the flu, but the question of whether or not people want to, what kind of changes they want to make to their lives to cope with that risk, I think is is a, a subject of, of democratic, that is a democratic conversation that needs to happen. And of course, like I would agree with you that if workers are finding that, um, you know, pursuing their day-to-day lives with the risk of the flu is is not 
is not the a kind of risk they want to take, then that's something that, yeah, like that would be subject to class struggle. But, you know, like I think the data will come out and we'll learn the truth as to how dangerous this disease actually was eventually, uh, decisively. But I'm personally, I, I don't. I think that the bourgeois science is is all wrong here on this okay, point. Okay. And I, yeah. I, but maybe I we can um, move on. Yeah, to we something. can move Sorry, on. Did you want to jump want- in, Elena? Yeah. yeah, I just wanted to say I tend to agree with you, Leila. Um, <laughs> but but that's because you know I've been following the news so clearly, and and it's it's become so so contradictory, especially now with the with the with the different strains, you know, the, the mutant strains of the virus. And what I fear most of all, what I fear, I mean, I, I'm not afraid of anything really, but <laughs> is that that there's got to be lockdown forever because they, they you know they find this. This, these mutations and we have the vaccine rollouts you know we have all of that but it's just going to prove to be too beneficial to the capitalist class to have these lockdowns and that's why they, they will try to find a way to circumvent uh, you know the lifting of lockdowns and that's something that I'm really scared of and this is something that only a strong working class movement uh, uh, can change yeah well Alex is uh, I mean I'm under a new lockdown. So it feels like lockdowns will last forever. But uh, La- Alex <laughs> and Britain has seen some freedom. So do you think lockdowns will will be here forever? <laughs> well, they've changed the narrative here slightly over the last couple of days. They've um, There was a series of stories released on Sunday through the, um, the bits of the capitalist press that are most close to the conservative party leadership declaring that the mm-hmm. the new strains weren't yeah. as bad as first advertised, declaring that they were, were proceeding towards herd immunity. And I think there is a narrative change there because the if you look at the, uh, the, the budget that was announced quite recently by the Conservative government and some wider calculations by like the Bank of England and other key players in bourgeois policymaking, they're clearly pushing for a big um, post-COVID recovery. They need that for profit-boosting possibilities. And they they say they want to essentially – they want to get everybody back to being as normal as possible because they want to make sure that any money that was saved by the middle class or the more better-off bits of the working class is spent uh, or in some cases invested in the market. So there is a clear narrative change now towards reopening and getting out there and spending. I mean, the, the way the bourgeois press has covered it here is ridiculous. They, I mean, British press is never more than one step away from an embarrassing World War II analogy. But now they're going full in with like the shoppers are like as brave as those storming the beaches of Dunkirk as they go by trainers. Um, so we're into a whole new phase of ridiculousness here and we really do have the ideal man in charge for this phase of ridiculousness in uh, Boris. He's um, very much the man of his class of, of the moment. Um, but did we, uh, Leila, do you want to move to our next our next question now? Yeah, I'm sorry to cut the, con- con- but we can just go back and forth on COVID all day, as me and Alex do <laughs> every single day. So we, we have to give the listeners something else to think about. Okay, so I would love to ask you both this question. Um, reading your essay, the middle class live. I really enjoyed the essay. I thought it was it was very well written, very beautifully written. One thing I noticed is that you use the word PMC, professional managerial class, which is um, a relatively more recent term coined by, of course, Barbara and John Ironreich in 1977. So Alex and I 
when we speak, we always use the more traditional Marxist categories of bourgeois, petty bourgeois, and proletarian. And of course, there's some middle categories or subcategories within there, mm-hmm. but those are the general major ones. Um, we actually consciously stopped using PMC because we just thought it wasn't useful anymore. But um, what advantages do you see with that category? Yeah, so so the term PMC obviously wasn't used by Marx himself, but that does not mean it's not Marxist. So Marx spoke of three uh, social classes. These are the bourgeoisie, the landowners, and the proletariat. He did not speak of the petit bourgeoisie in the critique of political economy. Anyway, So the bourgeoisie, the landowners, and the proletariat. But I think that in, if you if you use this framework, if you, if you regard Marx's teaching on on the basis and and superstructure that is retained uh, retained even in his uh, in his um, critique of political economy, so the Grundrisse and capital, and uh, um, the contributions to the critique of political economy, he speaks of the ideological superstructure of the economic base. And my definition of the PNC would be um, workers performing the intellectual labor of producing and sustaining and controlling the ideological superstructure of the capitalist economic base. And these are the, uh, this is the professional managerial class, how I define it. And there's one more thing to say. If we look at the 1859 six-book plan that Marx uh, initially wanted to write, you know, he had this, this plan, uh, uh, he initially wanted to write six books, and he never, he never got to do that. Um, you know, Capital also is an unfinished project. He actually planned a, a book about what he called the unproductive classes, right? So I think what Marx wanted to say about the function of the unproductive classes in capitalist society would correspond to what we term um, the professional managerial class today. And it's also, it, it's also, the hard piece, well, central piece of our of our article in the middle class Leviathan. Why is it so important? Why why do we use this term, or why do I use this term? Um, it's um, middle class bourgeois consciousness is relevant, you know, because it it generates an abstract uh, um, idealization or apotheosis of the human being while it's being um, succinctly disinterested in, in the concrete reality of people, of, of, of their daily survival. You know? And this contradiction uh, in terms of, 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 of what the PMC does and what the PMC thinks it does you know, is also important in explaining um, its function in the ideological superstructure. And this is why I think it's still a useful, it's a useful term. It's probably the book that Marx would have written if he hadn't died. <laughs> I don't know. Um, one thing I would add is that although the term PMC certainly does not appear in um, a classical Marxist political discourse, the concept definitely does. So, yeah. for example, you know, if you look at Trotsky's reports to the Comintern in the early 20s, he repeatedly talks about the salaried middle classes with professional skills as, you know, a particular group who can't simply be identified with the proletariat. Or just in terms of, say, the, the general situation following, you know, the October Revolution in 1917, not only do you have what you would call the traditional petty bourgeois in the form of the peasantry, who, of course, exert a very predominant influence, you also have what now you might call the PMC 
in the form of the um, office employees and the technical specialists who actually had a very contradictory and antagonistic relationship with the working class per se. So although the term doesn't appear in classical Marxist discourse, I think that um, uh, the concept essentially does. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think for me, when I was uh, thinking through this whole thing, um, I just felt that the category that tends to, to cover PMC is a bit too broad. And I, and I, I hear what you're saying in terms of, um, how the concept is kind of spoken about by Marx. And I, I, I would agree with you, like kind of conceptually, but I think it's a little bit more interesting and useful for me to understand, okay, like who is a part of the ruling class who is um, not part of the ruling class who is a proletarian. And then we can better understand the uh, specificities of, of those kind of middle groups, perhaps uh, through the um, through the the framework of productive versus unproductive labor, and I think that's a very a really key strategic question that revolutionaries of the past, like Luxembourg, Lenin, of course, used to talk about very much, which I think doesn't get enough uh, attention because I think that's a really who is a productive laborer is a really key strategic question. I think that the term PMC. I find that it encompasses some productive laborers and it doesn't, you know, and so it makes it difficult to understand what strategic potential strategic value that um, these folks might have, like with like the individual members of them. Um, so, yeah, that's why I that's why I, I, I kind of think of it a little bit differently. But I, I would agree with you on ter- in terms of um, the firm, the firm conceptual basis of it within perhaps traditional Marxian theory. Mm-hmm. But isn't it funny that I don't want to go back to the to the Corona uh, discussion, but because you said uh, you know who is a productive worker and who's not a productive worker, I think this this has been now confirmed, don't you think? I mean, it's it's a question now with who is defined as essential and who's not. Don't you think that this corresponds to to the question of productive and unproductive workers? I think essential, non-essential. I mean, yeah, I, I think that's like an interesting way of looking at it through the lens of the capitalist class. I don't know if I definitively agree with the way the capitalists uh, understand their own world. So mm-hmm. I think for me, when, I think understanding the the sites of commodity production and understanding through them through like the, the, the Marxian sense of commodity production and um, how to... Uh, and the workers that are key in valorizing those commodities. Um, so I think that there is definitely, I think the capitalist pr- perspective is important and it is essential to seeing how they view it from their perspective. Mm-hmm. But I think the Marxian perspective also has, I think has a stronger strategic kind of uh, weight to it because you can really understand like which workers do in fact have their hands on the levers of power um, if you have a good understanding of like the key sites of commodity production as well as the um, ways in which that they are valorized. So for instance, like capitalists will say, well, food takeout is essential, Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't, even though I would definitely agree that from a Marxian perspective, those are productive workers, their relation like 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 compared to say um, energy workers or even transportation workers, their strategic kind of um, position within capitalism is a little different. Like a general strike by the takeout work, food takeout workers 
would have a different kind of weight than mm-hmm. a general strike from the truck drivers, mm-hmm. for instance, in the United States, for instance. And mm-hmm. there's other, you know, kind of other workers in other countries that have a different impact within that nation state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Alex, did you want to come in on anything? Uh, sh- shall we move along to the next question then? Yeah. Okay. Um, just to um, expand further, I mean, all of these things are very much linked mm-hmm. together. Um, we've seen since, well, I remember back in 2008, the all the headlines in the bourgeois press in Britain were, is this the rebirth of the left with the 2008 to 2010 financial mm-hmm. crisis? <laughs> and the there was various different um, attempts to float new left organizations, uh, some of which actually, well, in the case of Syriza, actually got mm-hmm. into government. And then later, slightly later on, we get the cases of Corbyn and Sanders, who were, um, in Corbyn's case, in one election, came very close to getting into government. Sanders, not so much. But amongst all of them, they all drew behind them like a broad front of leftists, both Marxist and non-Marxist, many of whom all ended up rolling right into, if not an open capitulation to the bourgeoisie, then a certainly a very bad retreat before the uh, the, the propaganda wave that hit them from the bourgeoisie. I wondered if both of you had reflections on like the commonalities of the failure of the so-called new new left since um, the turn of the last decade, uh, in terms of like what were uh, potential common failings. Um, Particularly, there seems to have been, from my perspective, a a woeful misunderstanding of the nature of the capitalist state amongst all of these new formations that um, was really shown up whenever they got close enough to power for the the bourgeois state and the bourgeoisie more generally to exercise any influence over them. Their naivety was horribly shown up. So I don't know if um, Josh or Elena, you want to go first on that one. Well, I would say um, I agree completely with you, Alex, about the woeful misunderstanding of the nature of the state. I think, you know, the common factor is the failure of social democratic reformism, which is premised off understanding the state as, you know, a neutral terrain or a site of class struggle, which you can peacefully seize from within and and not fa- and failing to understand that it's an instrument of the bourgeoisie. It's, it's structurally determined as such an instrument that's not incidental to its functioning and that as such it has to be encircled and destroyed from the outside. And I think it's important to understand that that social democratic um, framework, that social democratic strategic perspective, which sees the state as a neutral terrain, is not only incapable of carrying out a revolution which goes beyond the capitalist relations of production, it is impossible for that framework to guide a substantive, meaningful modification of the balance of forces between the classes within capital. Because I think, you know, one of the, one of, you know, Lenin's great insights was that reforms are always the result of failed revolutionary struggles. Essentially, what social democracy was able to do after the Second World War was manage and mediate the gains for living labor, which were produced directly or indirectly by the revolutionary movement. It can't conquer those gains on its own. Um, you know, reformist social democracy in the West, just like, you know, land reform in the East Asian client states of the United States, functioned as an instrument of anti-communist containment alongside military counterinsurgency and repression 
And the east-west power balance, which necessitated this containment, was a product of the failure of the October Revolution as a project of communist transition. Because even though it did fail as a project of communist transition, it had as its effect, you know, the reform that was won from failed revolutionary struggle was the institutionalization of labor market rigidity, both in what I would call the degenerated worker states and in developed country social democracy, and also, you know, throughout much of the third world and what you could call like these national populist developmental regimes. The point is, when you take away the revolutionary threat, when you take away that independent revolutionary workers movement, social democracy becomes this completely void and an empty thing. The only function that, that social democracy can really fill is to mediate and contain and integrate this, uh, you know, insurgent workers movement that poses a revolutionary threat. In the absence of such a movement, social democracy is, is a pure paper tiger. It, it can accomplish nothing and it will, you know, very rapidly result in the, the kind of defeats that we've repetitively seen, not only in Europe, but I think uh, much deeper and more profound examples can be found in Latin America, say with the, the unfortunate stagnation of the Bolivarian project in Venezuela, or the way, you know, the Workers' Party in Brazil became the predominant party, but essentially just administered, you know, slightly kinder and more gentle neoliberalism until the point where the policies it was compelled to enforce actually resulted in the loss of its own support base and its falling out of power. So <laughs> I think that's, that's, that's sort of how, how I would sum up, uh, I think, the, the failures of um, uh, left populism or uh, a reformist social democracy in, in recent years. Yeah, th uh, thanks for that, Josh. I, I'm glad you brought in the whole uh, examples of the so-called pink tide as well, because I think that's uh, that's an, uh, we're still seeing the contradictions and the failures uh, borne out from that in places like um, Ecuador and Bolivia right now. And of course, I I agree that the the Bolivarian project has very much stalled, partly under um, external pressure from U.S. imperialism, but also due to internal contradictions and problems with uh, the PSUV's general rule as well. But um, Elena, did you did you want to come in on this as well? Um, no, I'm just I'm just enjoying what 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 you both of you are saying. I don't think uh, we disagree at all on this, unless of course Leila has something to say on this as well. But I'm I'm just enjoying it, and and I'm happy that nobody is mentioning culture wars. <laughs> and and I I I gotta say it's it's a big relief. I didn't want to. I I've never brought it up. Just forget it. <laughs> no, but what about what about you know all these? Because you mentioned Syriza. Um, what about uh, Varoufakis and his his great uh, his ambitious project? What was it called? DM twenty five. DM twenty five. And transform Europe. Do you know transform exclamation mark Europe? The radical left yeah. in Europe rediscovering hope. I'm just. Uh, uh there's, it's interesting, English edition published in the UK in 2019 by the Merlin Press. Yeah, I don't know, except for a few names. I've never heard about, I've never heard of any of these people who contribute to, to transforming Europe, a leftist w vision of Europe. Yeah. Um, well, um, I think I think my view on that is that um, <laughs> Varoufakis's sole virtue was that he resigned in time. Oh yeah. Um, that that's that's basically. I mean, he is. 
I mean, he he got out just before things, well, before Cyprus's open capitulation. But I mean, Varoufakis, I would say, is probably one of the worst examples of like um, social democratic mm-hmm. um, utopianism. Because he's a game he, theorist, you know, he's a game. Yeah, theorist. yeah. And like, I read his book. Um, was it called The Minotaur? A few years oh, ago. And yeah, uh, like he. He's a very fancy. He's a very fancy social democrat, and he has this particular style and the way he presents himself. But ultimately, what it all boils down to is a very, very mild reformism um, that was completely unable to be enacted in Greece because fundamentally, they, it wasn't just that they ran into the opposition of the German and the French mm-hmm. uh, bondholders. Mm-hmm. It was that they ran in headlong into the fundamental interests of Greek capitalism itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was why they basically collapsed, because um, Cyprus and Varoufakis thought that they somehow could find some way of unifying, perhaps, with the Greek ruling class. But the fact is that everything that has happened in Greece since it joined the European Union, since it joined the euro, including like the uh, the ability of the German ruling class to almost annihilate the Greek manufacturing sector via their uh, compar- massive advantage in manufacturing and trade. Um, everything has suited the Greek ruling class down to the ground. Yeah, yeah. So why on earth would they want to risk uh, uh, going down the route of uh, jeopardizing their, their membership of the uh, of the EU and coming into a direct war with the direct tr- um, economic war with the German and French ruling class, which no, but none of them were prepared to actually fight. Mm. Um, uh, Josh, did you want to comment on uh, Varoufakis and DM twenty five? No. <laughs> no. Okay, that'll be a no. Varoufakis' project is so, is so terrible; it's just inspired silence. <laughs> yeah, we we don't need. To, we know. I don't think we have to 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 go much deeper on that. I just. I just thought because you mentioned Sirius, and I haven't heard this in, in a while, you know, but still I have to say I'm really happy that nobody mentions the disastrous uh, politics, also Corbyn politics. And it's, oh almost, it's, it's almost like nobody, it's almost like even the people who supported Corbyn, I remember, you know, my, my UK friends who were, or, or, or let's put it this way, who at least were not, uh, who were inclined, you know, to vote for him. Um they are so ashamed now. They wouldn't even talk about. I wouldn't even mention it. Like it didn't exist. What? Corbyn? Who? What? No, no I never. Oh well, yeah, I never Jeremy. Who? <laughs> Jeremy. 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 Yeah. Oh, shouts. He, he got. I mean, it got. I mean, it got incredibly embarrassing towards the end. It was mm-hmm. um, the fact that they were they were elevating people as spokesmen and women who were basically they they would if. If the Labour Party had any working class votes left, they would drive them away, mm-hmm. the people that they were elevating. The likes of, obviously, um, my old friend Owen Jones, who still has me blocked on Twitter. <laughs> me too. Um, no, I'll block yeah. him. I blocked him. Because, you blocked yeah, him? Yeah, because Excellent. he, he quote-tweeted me. I said, that was that was funny uh, because he, he was had this thing for Julie Burchill, you know. And, oh, yeah. and Julie Birchall is one of my uh, my favorite authors of all times, and um, just gotta love her. And she and and he 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 just constantly you know quote tweeted her, quote tweeted her, and I said something to the effect of you know um, I think you've got you, you've got a soft spot for for her, and I know he's gay and so on, you know. And then and then because he cannot. Standard if somebody you know make, make is making fun of him as well as Ash Sarkar you know his and and, oh, he, and then 
And he just made, you know, and then he quoted me and I blocked him, you know, because that guy is, is a clown. You cannot, oh, yeah. you, can, you mean, cannot t- take him seriously, you know, but, but he's, sh- he's, he's, he's a representative. He's a, he's a real, um, you know, he's a great example for, I think the Corbin left <laughs> or what it used well, to be. Well, he is, it's per- well, personification. I mean, no, everybody forgets that he actually started off in like the, one of the worst uh, allegedly Trotskyist organizations in Britain, um, the International Marxist Tendency. He started off there, and mm-hmm. then basically, then he goes to work for John McDonnell in Parliament, and then becomes like a lobbyist for one of the, the Unite Union, and then pops up later on so as the as the voice of working class socialism. And I'm, I was thinking because mm-hmm. him and me are from exactly the same town in England, and I'm thinking like, yeah, because. And he's from the very, very posh end, obviously. And so the guys like that who spent their entire life in journalism or the union bureaucracy, and then guys like Aaron Bastani or the mm-hmm. the literal communist Ash Sarkar yeah, yeah. or the lunatic Paul Mason, who um, oh were all elevated as these great voices of Corbynism, I'm amazed they got a single vote by the end because they just reached, they were, they were a cartoon of um, mm-hmm. British leftism mm-hmm. by the end. And... Uh, it was a very, very. Um, if the British ruling class designed that, then they're far cleverer than I thought. But I don't <laughs> think they did. I think they just applied certain pressures and the lunacies of like what was a very petty bourgeois project just all come racing to the surface. Well, we were also talking about Novara Media in our in our article, and it's interesting, you know, Ash Sakar and um, what's his name, uh, Aaron Bastani, and oh, don't forget Keir Milburn. The famous sociologist uh, who says something to the effect of, oh, you know, um, society consists of people, right? This is the level of insight that he has. That's, that's very good. And, and uh, society com- consists of people who influence each other. And then he said, he, he depicts lockdown as, sorry to come back to that, to that topic again, but it's just so uh, pertinent. Uh, it's actually, you have to imagine lockdown as the realm of, freedom you know it's freedom <laughs> and you know and then then i hear ash sakar uh, talking about how uh, schools have to remain closed and how everybody has to you know uh home go back to homeschooling and home teaching which is of course so beneficial to the working class and you know it's not it's not a good look for a literal communist she says she is <laughs> but these people are, are pmc and that's why you know sometimes you need this this term just to just to to say it you know, and to to, to also express their class interest, their class interest, the class interest of Owen Jones, of Ash Sakar, of all these people, is to sustain neoliberal regime, to um to keep up uh, capitalist relations of production. That's the only one. They don't want anything to change, and uh, by all means, they don't want anything to change in the interests of workers. And this is why, this is their function in, in, in present society of such people. Yeah, completely. And uh, there's, there's always, there's a, a very, um, very well rewarded uh, particular slot in um, the, the class formations of British capitalism right now for the, um, shall we say, the the market-based left opposition, <laughs> uh, which is all in essence that they are. Um, Layla, did you want to jump in with anything here? Uh, well, no. Um, I, I mean, to the to the 
the point of the PMC as you see it. Yeah, absolutely. Like um, the left all across the world, like what they do is they basically just reinforce. They're the the more the most vicious flank of capital right now. So the right wing has taken a bit of a step back, and we have these you know so called left wing uh, intellectual um, workers, let's say, who are reinforcing and accentuating what the bourgeoisie would like to do. And I, I've seen this in Ontario very forcefully, you know, for the lockdowns, uh, Doug Ford, our premier here will institute some kind of restriction and the left will come in and demand more longer lockdowns, deeper Mm -hmm. lockdowns, more school closures. The schools are now all closed in Ontario, for instance, with no regard at all to the realities of what working people have Mm -hmm. to go to because they don't have to work like a proletariat person does like a mother a working mother doesn't have the option to stay home and manage remote learning for her child or provide her child with childcare. she has to go into work um and so the idea that schools can close but, it, yeah yeah you know, Layla, mm-hmm. so true so true but you know what happened to me of course when i talked uh, i said something sorry i have to i just have to I have to tell you this yeah please this go ahead on twitter and and and, and ash sakar and, and i mentioned this actually on twitter and she you know ash sakar she finds those tweets from people who who live in switzerland and who just you know randomly and she finds she picks out these people and you know what she tells those people you are racist right because she as a how did you frame it a b-a-m-e person you know she makes this claim that women, even working class women, she doesn't use the term working class, but everybody, you know, all mothers have to stay home and do homeschooling, is a is a claim that a BAME person makes. And if I criticize her for uh, for that, uh-huh. um, then then I'm a racist, you know, because this this. Uh, so now finally we get to the topic of culture wars. <laughs> but no, what I wanted to say is is this is what's happening. You know, if if they don't agree with you and if you criticize their their absolutely bourgeois politics they're gonna call you racist well i i don't really see the i'm, I'm struggling to see the tenuous connection here but um in between racism and like working mothers not able to take there title. is none yeah that's the whole point there is none, none um, but it's, it's just because she happens to be uh, a, a non-white person a person of color or uh, whatever she defines it and, and she makes this claim so anything, if, if you have an objection to her claim, then you are, yeah. by definition, a racist. That's the point, you know, and that's what she said. Well, the thing is that I, I, I know I, I've, I've drifted so far away from these culture wars. Like they use, I've drifted so far away from it that it's difficult for me to even take these people seriously. Like to, I, it's difficult for me to even think that they're, they're worthy of critique um, because working people... <laughs> race isn't real for working people like you work or you or you starve right so it, it it's so detached from the realities of working people like has she ever referred to a survey or looked at the rates at which working parents sent their their kids back to school when they were open for instance to see what working people actually do think of the school closures and start her analysis on that basis on the basis from the uh, on, uh, from the point of view of the proletariat 
these people don't of do that. Of course not. Yeah, yeah. Of course not. But it's not about that. It's not about politics. That's what I'm trying to say all the time when I yeah, address yeah. Mm-hmm. these these issues in my in my Substack, for example, and, mm-hmm. and the articles that I write. Um, it's not about politics, and we don't have politics proper anymore. Hmm. We have we have a de- we have a. a um, debate that's that's trying to sort people into categories mm. of friend and foe mm. and that's it and mm. this is it's, it's just labeling you know and and calling everybody racist so that's that's what it's about it's pure distilled bourgeois politics it's it's a politics yeah. without or very little working class participation um or and pressure so when these people have been set free to like the bourgeois scientists as well, same thing. They've just been, you know, set free to ravage the masses um, by their bourgeois overlords. Um, and they're using every single tactic in the book. Psychological terrorism, accusations of racism, for instance, is a very common one. Um, isolation, uh, gaslighting, mm-hmm. all of these different things are being wielded against the working class to break their will and further break down whatever remaining forms of organization remain to them, including the kin relations that they have. So yeah, it's really quite bad for sure. Um, but maybe that leads me to my next question. Did you want to take it away with another question, Alex? Um, okay. So if we're looking then at the potential future for um, workers' organizations, given that we've covered how the existing, actually existing leftism is obviously not any kind of answer. Um, But one of the models that was talked about on the the left side of Corbynism, um, when that still existed, was the idea that they were going to try and basically create versions of like the the old uh, post-World War II era communist parties in in Western Europe, for instance, um, Italy, the Italian, the old PCI, Italian Communist Party was mentioned as one particular example. Also, the French Communist Party. The idea that these had successfully achieved um, hegemonic status within the working class, partly through cultural organizations, and therefore that this was a way to, as they used to put it in my frequent arguments with them, they were going to achieve um, hegemony via um, the reinforcement of working class culture. Now, that was something that I regarded as a completely useless and utopian project and ignored the fact that the Italian Communist Party had, had its own leadership had liquidated it um, at the end of that process. But do you see any validity to that kind of like uh, um, approach which seeks to achieve some kind of um, cultural-based hegemony in the working class? Or more broadly, do you think there is any uh, potential future for a what's popularly described as like broad-based social democratic organizations uh, going into this particular period of capitalism? Um, Well, to answer that question um, from my perspective, I would say that culture is definitely very important, but in in the context of the class struggle, it's always subordinated to the organization of struggle. And it's interesting that the the PCI was, was cited as an example in these debates for Many reasons. I mean, one reason would be if, if you look at the period prior to the formation of the PCI, within the PSI, there was actually a long debate between those who prioritized um, struggle and, and the, the organization of struggle, um, mainly around uh, Bordiga and the so-called intransigent faction. 
And then those who essentially saw culture and like working class self-improvement and working class self-education as sort of an end in itself. And that, that, that faction incorporated many, including people like um, uh, Gramsci. So I think that, that from the beginning, this, this valorization of, of culture as, as an independent variable has, has always been, been associated with a kind of reformism. I mean, the only material base you can have for a combative working class culture is a combative working class movement that is actually fighting the capitalists. And such a movement is, is going to generate a working class culture. Any, any working class culture outside of a movement like that is, is as you pointed out, sort of just an, an empty affectation. It doesn't have any, any basis in, in people's real lives or experiences. And I think also to, to continue discussing the um, uh, PCI, or for that matter, the PCF, I think the, the trajectories are fundamentally very similar. Um, you know, these are parties who emerge as a result of the revolutionary wave following the October Revolution as um, revolutionary parties. But by the time you get to the period after the Second World War, um, their whole horizon is completely committed essentially to making making capitalism more efficient and earning a fair share for the um, uh, the workers within capital. And once capitalism develops to a certain point where that program is of earning a fair share is no longer tenable simply on the basis of reformism, these parties are driven by their own internal logic to turn completely against the working class and actually like very explicitly in the Italian case to enforce like brutal austerity and restructuring of the production process to essentially break up and decompose the working class at the same time as the leadership of the PCI was also very committed to criminalizing anyone to their left who opposed this austerity and this restructuring as, as a terrorist. Like the, the, the formally expressed line of the PCI was that if you oppose our collaboration with capital to make Italian capital more competitive on the world market and you act to sabotage that collaboration, you are a terrorist and you should be in a super maximum security prison. So that tells you kind of everything you need to know about the people who would cite that as a positive example, what they will do to you if they come into power. They're making that, you know, very painfully clear. Yeah, I I, I was always I always think that one of the um one of the great um, criminalities of the um, post-war period was the fact that you had this um, intense period of revolutionary or pre-revolutionary activity in certainly France and Italy. And it was the, in the French case, it was the PCF and the trade union leaders who gave de Gaulle a way out in 1968. And as you were saying, Josh, it's the Italian communist leaders who essentially worked harder than almost anybody else to preserve Italian capitalism in the long period between the late 60s and the early 80s. Um, but I throw to um, Elena, did you want to make any comment on this? Um, no. I'm Easy happy, question. I'm happy with your answers. <laughs> <laughs> Leila, did you want to say anything? Okay. Have I lost my co-host? Where's Leila? I'm so sorry. My mic was turned off. I'm here. Can you hear me? I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay. I, oh, damn, it got I me. I was just, I was just saying, did you want to, did you want to come in on this at all? On I a, don't. I just, I just started talking to myself about how I wanted to go back to the previous question um, about China uh, that we asked okay, when Josh on. fell offline. 
Um, so Josh, I was just asking about a line that that was in, in the essay in regards to the aesthetic differences between, um, the way in which Chinese and Western capitals present themselves, wherein, uh, Chinese capital quote, conceals its factional differences behind an image of monolithic unity and Western capital does the opposite. I was interested in learning why you think that is like, what do you think the material roots of this aesthetic difference is? Well, I think the, the material roots of the, the difference is, is that the Chinese state is, is fundamentally within the, the Stalinist heritage. And Stalinism is essentially a way to manage the contradictions of the revolutionary process in these post-revolutionary societies by completely shutting down any kind of, kind of independent um, uh, civil society or debate. And in the case of the, the transitions away from, um, uh, you know, actually existing socialism back to like normal capitalism, because I would argue that actually existing socialism was itself fully, fully within the framework of the law of value, but a law of value that had been contested by a, um, uh, a very dynamic working class movement. But in the course of transition back into normal capitalism in the, in the Eastern Bloc, that, that Stalinist superstructure is, is taken apart. And you, you essentially have this, this kind of liberalism, which itself is also, of course, very, very bloody and criminal and, and corrupt and so on. But in China, they're able to maintain this, this continuity of kind of a Stalinist, um, Bonapartist superstructure that they inherited from the revolutionary period. At the same time as they've also eliminated like all of the incredible social rights that Chinese workers actually did have before market reform. So. I think um, uh, the Chinese are actually sort of providing an, an alternative model of how to manage the contradictions of capitalist development. You know, West, Western liberalism is essentially premised off, off giving people a certain illusion of choice and, you know, a certain freedom to complain and blow off steam so long as it leads nowhere. While, while China is more or less more or less reintroducing, you could say, this kind of Austrian or, or Prussian style autocracy in, into advanced capitalism with like, you know, systematic censorship and any any kind of fundamental opposition politics, including Marxist politics, is, is driven underground. You know, like there's been, there's been waves of arrests of um, uh, Marxist students in recent times in China for trying to organize or, or relate to um, uh, workers and uh in production. So I think that's sort of the root of the difference. I, in addition to that, so I, I work at the uh, Japanese Studies Department and I have uh, a lot of colleagues actually uh, working uh, at the Sinology Department and especially one colleague who studies the reception of Marx in China right now by the, uh, by the Communist Party. And it's interesting uh, what they make of Marx, what they make of Marx teaching. So basically, they empty uh, Marx's teaching of all relation to, to the workers' movement, right? Uh, this is what the Chinese government does. And uh, Marx is depicted as this, um, as a thinker of, 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 of national pride. Mm. This is, you know, the people. So Marx is, Marx's face is, is still visible everywhere, you know, in these public places and, you know, uh, and, and, and leadership meetings and so on. 
but it's completely void or it's been emptied out of all uh, Marxist content of, of the contradiction between capital and labor and wage labor and all these problems. Marx is, uh, is a national uh, a national hero, a hero for the people. Mm -hmm. But there's no talk of classes anymore in the Chinese discourse. Mm. And you know, they have these departments at the university where they teach Marxism. It's the official line of Marxism, which has uh, ultimately nothing to do with Marx teaching, you know? Mm. Do you see, um, so... Do you see this tactic, uh, capital's tactic of just um, kind of overt oppression becoming something that the Western capitals take on? Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I think that, that actually it's, it's very interesting to see. I, I would say, I think in, in recent years, all signs would seem to indicate that if anything, the, the Western powers, even as they become you know, more aggressive towards China as a competitive state, I think they're, they're actually becoming more and more enthusiastic about uh, transitioning towards the Chinese model domestically. If you see the enthusiasm for things like systematic internet censorship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just to throw in something um, here uh, from my perspective, the, the other, the, the, the contradictory uh, process between the, the, emergent Chinese bourgeoisie and their competitors in the Western capitalist nations has always been that even back in the 90s, I remember the, um, the Blair going over to both China and Singapore and saying how marvelously efficient it all was over there. And uh, wasn't there a lot to learn from it? And the the fact that they are trying to move in that direction, I would say, is, is becoming increasingly clear, but they're their scope to do so, I would say, is much more limited than they imagine. I think that the, the bourgeoisie in Britain and the United States certainly um, would love to be able to put, put themselves in a position where they can um, uh, use the brute force of the state uh, in the same very, very brutally efficient manner as the Chinese, um, the Chinese capitalists hiding behind a red flag do. But I think that the one of the things that the um, the legacy of liberalism and the legacy of um, just the fact that the the Western capitalist economies are in a much more decayed state now than the more um, vibrant Chinese capitalist economy is that they would be restricted in their ability to actually make that stick. I mean, one of the reasons why Layla and I were um, came out and said that the, the COVID passport is very unlikely to stick. It's just because of the, the sheer level of uh, corruption, short-sightedness and inefficiency in the Western capitalist state machines these days. I think many of them would love to be as um, supposedly all-encompassing as the Chinese um, state's control is, but the 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 inefficiency, corruption, pettiness of the, uh, the state machines these days if not rules that out, then it certainly makes the, their attempts to be so much more inefficient. And that's before we get into questions of um, their legitimation um, of themselves, the, the bourgeoisie in uh, Britain and the United States in particular, as being based on some kind of inheritance of freedom, whereas the, uh, the, the Chinese officialdom still um, formally stands behind the, the legacy of the, of the revolution, even if they... Um, even if they now suppress even uh, Mao's uh, more radical teachings, you know, just maybe end the show on a positive note. Did you did you want to ask that question, Alex, or do you want me to take it? Well, yes. I mean, all we were uh, thinking of just uh, finishing finishing off with is that 
um, just asking everybody the looking looking at the way that things stand at the moment. Um, what is what do we think about a way forward for um, the kind of political outlook that I think we all probably support here? Um, what is the way forward for the working class in this current historical juncture? I, a lot of writers, um, not that many, not many. Not, not, I think that you two are some of the only ones who are very straightforward with the fact that the working class is currently quite atomized, and its prior forms of organization have are disintegrating or have disintegrated. And so, you call for a quote new forms of worker organization. So maybe if you could speak to a little bit about what that would look like and yeah, just generally what you think the way forward will be in the next few years. Um, well, taking that question, I think, you know, taking the United States, which I'm somewhat familiar with, first of all, as an example, is the, the entire union movement, the entire labor movement in the United States, as you, you could fairly describe it as, is completely decadent. It's completely integrated into the state apparatus. Um, it, it very rarely carries out strikes or any direct forms of struggle. And it's, it's you know, mainly interested in ensuring that its officials continue to draw high salaries and that they can accumulate more and more dues-paying members in the, you know, the easiest, most peaceful way, um, regardless of whether they're actually substantively representing the interests of those members. So... I think before you can even begin to talk about um, uh, building a Marxist party or a revolutionary party, first of all, you know anybody who identifies as a Marxist has to get in at the ground level and contribute to either building up a real militant rank and file opposition in existing unions that is, is, is completely opposed to the existing leadership and it's focused on developing forms of, of direct struggle like strikes and walkouts and so on, which are almost a, um, a lost art, unfortunately, for the U.S. working class, or alternatively building up new forms of organization and the overwhelmingly um, unorganized workforce, especially because many people don't understand that under U.S. labor law, even if you don't belong to anything that's legally recognized as a union, you still have a legally protected right to engage in, in all kinds of concerted activity. So it's perfectly possible even to just form, you know, a workers committee and carry out a walkout and, 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 and build from there. And, you know, I don't know, know as many as I would like, but I, I know a handful of people who are definitely working very seriously in, in that direction. And I think that's the, the only way forward. You have to organize with like-minded people. You have to seriously commit to studying the Marxist mm -hmm. classics. But at the same time, you have to get in on the ground level and work to build like new forms of worker initiative and new forms of creativity um, in the labor movement. Because if, if you're if you're not starting with that, you know you, you you will have you will have no energy to accomplish anything else. It's just like I was saying about uh, reformist social democracy previously. Without that that lifeblood or fuel of of worker insurgency that you have to build from the ground level, there's just going to be nothing going on. Elena, did you have anything to add? Yeah, just just uh, I agree to all of that. Just small thing um, for people for PNCs as myself. Um, uh, stop making concessions to uh, bourgeois to the bourgeois liberal elite. This is something that that has been uh, um, pestering. Um, you know that's been going on in the left for too long. And I think because my 
my activity is not uh, is not an activism here. It's it's in theory, and theory is equally important, at least. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, Josh said, read the Marxist classics, do it and stop, stop being fearful. That's what I would, what I would say also to, to people maybe not so close to, to workers activism, you know, speaking, you know, just saying, speaking truth and, and being truthful and being, you know, sincere. This is something that's also unfortunately a lost art that people have been too intimidated to speak out. And this is something that I think we should also remember in this struggle. Alina, you are singing my song. I cannot agree more. It's so important to know and speak the truth in whatever way you can in this time of so much mystification. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. (laughs) You too. (laughs) Is there anything to add, Alex? Yeah, I'd just like to say uh, thanks to um, Josh and Elena for coming on. I think this has been a, a really good discussion between us all. And um, Thank you so much. Well, uh, our pleasure. Yeah, it was a great discussion. Uh, is there anything um, that you have coming up that you'd like to mention in terms of uh, giving it a, uh, a plug to our audience or any, any anything else you want to recommend people look at from yourselves? So... Yeah, maybe. I have a I have a big book on Marx coming out <laughs> on the 20th of May. It's called Value Without Fetish. And yeah, check it out. It's a big book on Marx's critique of political economy. And uh, what, who's that being published by, Elena? Uh, it's Brill, academic publisher. It's... Uh, it's a huge book, and I look at a certain reception of Marx's critique of political economy. 600 pages, but you're going to survive. <laughs> yeah, intellectual labor is, um, <laughs> is is very much needed at this current moment in time, as I think we've all agreed on. Um, Thank you. Thanks so much for uh, having us. No problem at all. So um, thanks to both of you for coming on, and um, we'd, we'd love to have you back on sometime in the future. Yes, we'd love that too. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed the, the discussion. And I would just add also that I'm, I'm on the editorial committee of a, um, a journal called Counterattack, which should be coming out in May of this year. And if you check out on counterattackjournal.org, it will definitely be up there. And essentially what we're trying to do is to have a forum for uh, this kind of a Marxist critique of the left and um, discussion of ways to move forward and um, the strategic strategic perspective that we want to adopt. Okay, so everybody everybody keep an eye out for that and we'll certainly uh, link to that when um, in our tweets as well when that comes up because the, the more of this kind of critique we can do, the better. Um, but I think that wraps it all up unless Layla you've got anything to finish on uh, no thank you everyone for listening and um, we'll hopefully all stay in touch as things uh, develop it's exciting times great <laughs> yeah. so good luck to you too yeah. thank you <laughs> we'll see you all on the capitalist downslope <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay. okay see you bye bye take care take care thank you bye bye